Welcome to the World War I History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial, a museum and research center dedicated to preserving and presenting the history of General Douglas MacArthur, which includes the story of World War I and that of the millions of men and women who served in that war. The Zimmerman Telegram From the very beginning, World War I was a war in which signals intelligence was incredibly important. With the belligerent nations communicating via radio, thousands of messages were flying through the air with little to nothing stopping them from being intercepted. On the Western Front in 1914, the German army was forced to rely a great deal on radio communications. In contrast, French and British forces were able to rely heavily on their own wire cable networks. This left their radios free to listen in on German radio traffic. By the First Battle of the Marne, French intercept stations were picking up a heavy volume of German messages, which were giving them a clear picture of German movements. The repetition of certain call signs also identified different German units and even specific German commanders. Some of these messages were encoded, others were sent in plain text. This provided vital intelligence to the Allies and played a role in frustrating the German Schlieffen plan. Around the same time on the Eastern Front, the Germans themselves would benefit from the poor communication security of the Russians. Many Russian cryptographers and transmitters had issues with speed and accuracy. This meant that many messages had to be repeated over and over again. To avoid this duplication, sometimes transmitters simply sent messages in the clear. In the end, a combination of signals intelligence and the ability of the Germans to swiftly concentrate their forces resulted in the destruction of two whole Russian armies at Tannenberg and the Missourian Lakes. After these early months of the war, the Allied and Central Powers began realizing the vulnerabilities of communication via radio. For a time, it seemed that the telegraph, with its wire cables, was the safest option. Even this, however, had its weaknesses. The great cables crossing the world knew no borders. In fact, in linking the world together, the great system of cables crossed into all territory, regardless of the political or wartime status of each area. Cables could also be cut. If a nation's cables were cut, then it was solely at the mercy of sending messages over the cables of neutral or enemy nations. When the war started in 1914, this is exactly what happened to Germany. As German troops marched into Belgium, the British cable ship Telconia, acting on orders from 1912, cut all ten of Germany's transatlantic telegraph cables. Days later, the Teleconia returned to roll up these cables to prevent any attempt at repair. These actions effectively cut Germany off from any of its own transatlantic communication with the Western Hemisphere. As a result, Germany was forced to send all telegrams to this part of the world via neutral countries or via cables that passed through territory controlled by the Allies. Not content to merely disrupt German communications, the British also ramped up their code-breaking efforts, creating the innocuous-sounding Room 40 to gather intelligence on German communications. For the first year of the war, aided by the recovery of German naval codebooks in the Baltic, Room 40 focused on German naval traffic. After the Battle of Jutland in 1916, however, the German high seas fleet mainly confined its efforts to the Baltic Sea, and Room 40 began to devote more of its resources to the broader strategic picture of the war. 
These efforts would be rewarded in 1917. Room 40 would produce one of the greatest intelligence feats of the war, the interception and decryption of the Zimmerman telegram, a message sent through cables that crossed into enemy and neutral territory. The value of an intelligence product is determined by how it is used. The ultimate exploitation of the Zimmerman telegram would be a master class in not only decryption, but also in statecraft and propaganda. In 1917, after several years of war and the deaths of millions, the combatants were wearing down. Just a year before, the American President Woodrow Wilson had been re-elected with the slogan, He Kept Us Out of War. To the increasingly desperate European powers, it appeared that America would remain on the sidelines of the war. The Allies in particular hoped that the pro-war factions in America, such as those led by ex-President Theodore Roosevelt, would triumph, but Wilson's re-election had dampened any hopes of adding America's fresh strength to the Allied arsenal. The Allies knew it would take an incredibly drastic event to propel the United States into the war, and as 1917 began, there seemed to be little hope of that. During the early years of the war, President Wilson had shepherded the country through a number of potential crises that under different leadership might have resulted in America entering the war. Wilson's devotion to staying out of the war was firm, and it was backed up by a relative consensus in America that the European War, as it was called, was not an American problem and held no sinister threat for North America. That was all about to change, though. On January 16, 1917, a coded German dispatch was intercepted by British naval intelligence. The dispatch had been sent via telegraph from Berlin to the United States via Copenhagen and London. British intelligence easily gained access to the message as it passed through London. To ensure delivery, the message had also been sent from Germany via neutral Sweden's cable to South America. Aware that Sweden was relatively pro-German despite its neutrality, early in the war the British had tapped into the Swedish cable. This duplicate dispatch was also intercepted. When the officer on duty at the British Admiralty noted that the message did not use the German naval code, but rather a diplomatic code, he forwarded it to the political section in Room 40. There, two civilians, 46-year-old Reverend William Montgomery and 31-year-old Nigel de Grey, were hard at work. Noting the unusual length of the message, they began slowly deciphering it, starting with the message signature. Soon they worked out the name Zimmerman, the name of the German foreign secretary. Moving back to the top of the message, they tried to decipher the words they thought were the name of the addressee. Instead of a name, however, they deciphered the words most secret, and for your excellency's personal information. It wasn't a name, but it was a clue. The message was clearly intended for the German ambassador in Washington, D.C., Count von Bernstorff. The message appeared routine, but then the word Mexico was deciphered. This unusual inclusion piqued their interest. Then they deciphered the word alliance. Then the phrase Japan and us. Now it was clear the telegram was important. Germany and a potential alliance with Japan or Mexico? Japan at the time was one of the Allied powers. So whatever did this message mean? After weeks of patient work, they were able to look at a relatively complete text of the message. It actually contained two separate messages. One was directed to the German ambassador in Washington, D.C. 
It announced that on February 1, 1917, Germany would resume unrestricted U-boat warfare. The ambassador was instructed to inform the U.S. government of this on February 1st, but no sooner. The other message was more shocking, though. The ambassador was instructed to send it by the safest channels to the German minister in Mexico, who was then asked to speak to the president of Mexico about its contents. At the time, the codebreakers had a relatively complete text, but for the sake of clarity, this is the complete text. It reads, We intend to begin on the 1st of February, unrestricted submarine warfare. We shall endeavor in spite of this to keep the United States of America neutral. In the event of this not succeeding, we make Mexico a proposal of alliance on the following basis. Make war together, make peace together. Generous financial support and an understanding on our part that Mexico is to reconquer the lost territory in Texas, New Mexico, and Arizona. The settlement in detail is left to you. You will inform the president of the above most secretly as soon as the outbreak of war with the United States of America is certain, and add the suggestion that he should, on his own initiative, invite Japan to immediate adherence and at the same time mediate between Japan and ourselves. Please call the president's attention to the fact that the ruthless employment of our submarines now offers the prospect of compelling England in a few months to make peace. Signed, Zimmerman. The telegram was shocking to the British. It appeared that the Germans were trying to peel away Japan from the Allies. Mexico was a well-known conundrum for the United States. Americans had large investments in the country, but Mexico was also regarded as a trouble spot. American forces had entered Mexico several times since World War I began in Europe, and at the time of the Zimmerman telegram, a large expeditionary force under the command of John J. Pershing was marching through Mexico. That Germany would seek to exploit this regional conflict was a serious development. The promise of the return of the territories of Texas, New Mexico, and Arizona, however, was more shocking. The code breakers knew this message was vitally important and called in the Director of Naval Intelligence, Admiral Sir William Reginald Hall. Hall read through the deciphered message. He knew immediately that the message was quite possibly the key to getting America into the war. But there was a problem. How could the British use this intelligence or share it without revealing the capabilities of Room 40? And what if the Germans found out that the code had been broken? If the Germans then changed their codes, it might take Room 40 years to break the new ones. Then, revealing the content of the Zimmerman telegram would prove to be a Pyrrhic victory. The other problem was the Americans. They would certainly want to verify the authenticity of the telegram. That would mean uncomfortable questions about the source of the message and would require the revelation that the British had been reading American communications traffic. That was a particularly touchy subject given America's neutrality. Hall would eventually find an ingenious solution to these problems. The telegram had been sent to the German ambassador in Washington, D.C. via the U.S. State Department, which in turn hand-delivered it to the German embassy. This arrangement had been agreed upon by President Wilson, who was trying to mediate the conflict. Germany had complained that it had no way to communicate confidentially with their ambassador in Washington, D.C. because of their lack of transatlantic cables. 
As a show of good faith, Wilson offered to transmit telegrams between Berlin and Washington, D.C. through the U.S. State Department, which would then deliver the telegrams to the German embassy. When this happened in early January 1917 with the Zimmerman telegram, the message was then passed to Mexico by the German minister in Washington. When the message was transmitted to Mexico, its code was changed to an older diplomatic code because the embassy in Mexico did not have the current diplomatic code. Using an agent he had in the Mexico City Telegraph office, Hall was able to obtain this version of the Zimmerman telegram. The British ability to break this older diplomatic code was already known. Plus, in revealing the source of the message as a Mexican telegraph office, the British could avoid any accusations that they were reading messages bound for the U.S. State Department. Nevertheless, the British exercised caution, still not wanting to reveal the telegram unless absolutely necessary. February 1st came and went. Germany resumed unrestricted U-boat warfare, and the British waited for the United States to enter the war in response to this danger. Nothing happened. Finally, unable to wait any longer, on February 22nd, the British delivered the Zimmerman note obtained from Mexico to the American ambassador in London. The ambassador was outraged by the contents of the message, but he accepted the British story that the message had been acquired in Mexico. On February 24th, he forwarded the information to President Wilson. Several days later, the president allowed the message to be released to the Associated Press. But it wasn't exactly the London Intercept or the Mexico Intercept. It was a new American Intercept. The British had requested that they not be identified as the source of the intelligence, so the American government retrieved yet another copy of the telegram from the Washington branch of Western Union. With help from Room 40, an American embassy official deciphered the message yet again. This presented yet another advantage for the British. The American government had authenticated the intelligence in a way that would make it hard for anti-British factions to accuse the Allies of planting the intelligence themselves. On March 1st, headlines across America announced the staggering news. Germany appeared to be working to conquer the United States with the help of Mexico and Japan. The text of the Zimmerman telegram was also included in the papers. Most Americans were shocked by the telegram and by its origin. Arthur Zimmerman, the German foreign minister, had been somewhat popular in America. His elevation to the post of foreign minister had been greeted with enthusiasm in the American press. He seemed far more accessible and sensible than previous ministers in American eyes because he was a self-made man, not a Prussian Junker. As Barbara Tuckman wrote, being self-made predisposed every American bred to the automatic assumption that to be self-made is to be virtuous. In Imperial Germany, it merely had the effect, as so often happens to the self-made in a society of exaggerated class distinctions, of making Zimmermann more Hohenzollern than the Kaiser. For any who still doubted the authenticity of the telegram, their objections were silenced when Zimmerman himself publicly accepted authorship of the message. Zimmerman hoped the American people would realize that Germany intended to fund a Mexican war only if America joined the Allies. But this nuance in such a time of tension between the United States and Mexico was lost on most. 
As American public opinion began moving in favor of a war against Germany, in Germany there was an investigation into the matter. How had this top-secret communique ended up in the hands of the Americans? Ultimately, the Germans would settle on treason as the source of the breach. There was no concern that the German codes had actually been broken, and Room 40 would continue its secretive work. Back in America, the publication of the Zimmerman Note convinced much of the isolationist press that neutrality had failed. Few wanted war, but now there had been a loss of innocence and a betrayal in the minds of many. As Barbara Tuckman concluded in her study of the affair, in itself the Zimmerman telegram was only a pebble on the long road of history. But a pebble can kill a Goliath, and this one killed the American illusion that we could go about our business happily separate from other nations. In world affairs, it was a German minister's minor plot. In the lives of the American people, it was the end of innocence. Five weeks after the publication of the telegram, America entered the European War. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, please contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.